The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey, everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes we hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And this is one of those occasions. 55 years ago, the autobiography of Malcolm X was released. Since that day, the book has literally shaped and changed the lives of millions of people, including yours truly. So today I sit down to discuss the book with Zahir Ali. He is a Soros Equality Fellow. He was the project manager at the Columbia University Malcolm X Project, and he's a brilliant oral historian. So we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about what's in it, how and why it was made, and of course, the profound impact that it's had on the world. Zahir, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as I hear, at the beginning of every episode, I drink a cup of coffee straight from Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. And this week I am drinking plain black coffee with some cream added. Because Malcolm once said that the only thing that he likes integrated is his coffee. Are you a coffee drinker? I am not a coffee drinker. Oh, my God. So I don't know exactly how you can be in the Malcolm X tradition and not drink. So I will now drink two cups of coffee. Yes, you must. You must. That, that's the one thing that I couldn't never get with uh, was the, the culture of coffee. It's, it's really interesting. The story of coffee, for people who don't know, of course, coffee originates out of Arab culture, right? And so coffee becomes the signature drink of the Nation of Islam. And that's not coincidental. In some of the early cookbooks of the Nation of Islam, they are circulating recipes for making original Arab coffee. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, coffee was not just a drink. Nothing was just in the Nation of Islam, <laughs> right? Everything in the Nation of Islam was with purpose and intentionality. And so the popularity of coffee in the Nation of Islam was very much tied to the history of coffee as a drink coming out of sort of Arab and Muslim culture. Wow, that's, that's actually super fascinating. And that gives me some context for a few things that we're gonna talk about today. Talking about the autobiography of Malcolm X, the first place I wanna begin is the personal uh, dimension of this. The autobiography of Malcolm X is without question the most important book that I've ever read. It changed my life. In some ways it probably saved my life. I read the book as a teenager. How old were you when you read the autobiography of Malcolm X? I think I was like 15 or 16. Yeah. So you were like me. I was I was trying to figure my life out. I was trying to figure the world out. My brother uh, had bought a copy of it. He was already reading books and doing all kinds of stuff with knowledge. We were going to black bookstores and I was reading. And then I picked up this book and I haven't been the same since, man. I, I read every word of it. Very quickly, you know, it was it was about 500 pages, a little 500 pages. And I read every word of it and I was so transformed. I wanted to join organizations. I went to the mosque around the corner and became Muslim. I took my Shahada. I radically reimagined the world. For me, this book was a story of what's possible. It was a, it was a riveting story about a man who was born in under the, some of the most extreme and oppressive circumstances who reach some of the, the deepest lows you could reach in society, but somebody who had been 
saved, in a sense, through love, through care, through commitment, and through books. His love for reading in prison, as well as the care that he received from his family, from his sisters, in particular from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam, allowed him to become a world historical figure who would change the lives of so many others. For me, this book was a testimony to what was possible. Again, I haven't been the same since. What, what did the book mean to you? How'd you? How did you experience it? So, you know, it's, I think it's, it's good to think about the context, right? So I encountered this book, I was in an English class and we used to have to do these monthly book reports. And, you know, the state provides this list of books that you're supposed to draw from. And I, I went to my teacher, I was a black woman, and I said, I do not want to read another book by a white man. <laughs> and, you know, God bless her and all of those teachers and educators, especially those working in the public schools who are able to create space for their students in the way that she did. She assigned me the autobiography of Malcolm X. Ooh, that's a wonderful went, teacher right there. Yeah. So I went to the, the school library. I checked it out that Friday, and I couldn't put it down for the whole weekend. And in reading this book, it was, it was almost like a whole track of history had been withheld, right? Because in, in schools, we, we basically all we had was like Frederick Douglass. Right. It was always men. It was like Frederick Martin Douglass. Luther King, Frederick Douglass. Martin Luther King, that's it, that's it, right? Uh, maybe Rosa Parks, Mary Harriet Tubman, right? But that was it. You know, so this, this book came to me in the right time, and it gave me as a student in a, a school that was mixed, but it was, it was moving from predominantly white to predominantly black. The faculty were not adjusting, you know, predominantly white faculty were not adjusting to that reality. And I needed a language, I needed an analysis to understand the ways that black students at our school were being treated with uh, disparately. And so this book sort of gave me that foundation to challenge white supremacy that I was experiencing personally. Wow. This this book is released in October of 1965, eight months and eight days, actually, after Malcolm X is killed in the Audubon Ballroom. What kind of reception did the book get when it first came out? By and large, the book was critically acclaimed. Some of the same publications that had mocked Malcolm's death or sort of coldly remarked on his death now we're publishing pieces that revisited his story. Absolutely. The New York Times, when they reviewed the book, said that this was an extraordinary book, a brilliant, painful, and important book. The nation uh, said a great book with its dead-level honesty, its passion, its exalted purpose. It will stand as a monument to the most painful truth. Uh, I.F. Stone said this book will have a permanent place in the literature of the Afro-American struggle. So there was a sense uh, early on that this book was going to matter in so many ways. And this book has come to matter in so many ways. I do uh, work with uh, Books Through Bars, which is an organization uh, that gets uh, literature into prisons around the country. And the autobiography of Malcolm X is always at the top of the... I mean, people ask for law books, Bibles, Korans, and Malcolm X. Anybody I meet who's involved in some sort of grassroots politics, radical politics, progressive politics, they mention Malcolm X. Barack Obama talks about reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. I mean, it really runs the gamut who this book has mattered for. And who better to tell this story than Alex Haley? Who is Alex Haley when this book is being written? Now, at this point, Alex, we don't have roots yet. We don't have any significant literary accomplishment yet from Alex Haley. We have some really compelling essays. We have some interesting work in Reader's Digest, some stuff in Playboy. 
Who was Alex Haley at this time to do this work? So Alex Haley uh, was just a budding writer. He had served some time in the Coast Guard. His politics were probably, I think they're Republican, but Republican in the sort of Eisenhower Republican, right? Like the that that sort of remnant of black Republicans. He was there in a transitional um, when, phase. Yeah, yeah. This is this is when the Democratic Party was still like the Dixie Party, right? But you know, not very much a you know a believer in the American project. And this was a big break for Alex Haley to do this project. I think at the time he started this in 1963, you know, by that time, Malcolm had become one of the most uh, requested speakers on college campuses across America. So it was clear that this was someone who was compelling. You know, what's interesting, though, is he, you know, Doubleday was the the original contract for this book was with Doubleday. And, uh, you know, after Malcolm was assassinated, Doubleday didn't, uh, they decided not to publish the book. And so they had to go. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I need my readers, I need my audience to hear. This. So Doubleday decided <laughs> that after Malcolm X was killed, that this yeah. book wouldn't, I mean, that seems like such a different publishing logic I, yeah, than 2020. You know, so look, I don't know all of the details, but I, for what I remember, it's that it was just, that felt it was too hot. And so it went to Grove Press. And this was, you know, Manny Marable calls this, you know, one of the most disastrous decisions in publishing history. <laughs> exactly. Right? Is to pass on the, you, who wants to be that editor that goes down in history as having passed on the autobiography of Malcolm X? You feel like a big loser right now. Exactly. Um, but, you know, so that, to your point, it wasn't sure that this had the legs that it had, right? So when he was finished with the autobiography of Malcolm X, he said, you know, I, I wonder, you know, let me, let me look into this. And of course, you know, that takes him down this, the road to produce Roots, which is, you know, the other major text that, that he is known for resulting in, you know, one of the most uh, watched miniseries in television history, all legacies of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Wow. You know, this book is like, it's a book of history. It's a book of literature. It's a book of scripture, right? I mean, this is, this is like a sacred text for many people and is as prophetic as, as for many other people, a sacred text can be. And it's, it's all of those things. Absolutely. You know, I said when I started the podcast that I was going to do episodes on specific books, books that mattered. And I was like, what could be the first book that I could do? And it was the easiest choice of anything I've ever done. For those that have not read it, the autobiography of Malcolm X is, like all autobiographies, a story of one's life. But it comes at a very important time in Malcolm X's life. Uh, the book is released uh, October 29th of 1965. And so many things have happened over that period of time. From Malcolm's release from prison to his time becoming a leader in the Nation of Islam, to the time where he leaves the Nation of Islam, to the time where he's killed in 1965, eight months before the book comes out, we've seen so many different Malcolm X's. And we've seen so many transformations in his life, but also in America. And this book captures so much of that. Can you talk a little bit about why? You know, this, this is such a unique text because it is both about the life of a single individual, uh, Malcolm X, Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, but it is also about an entire community. 
it is one of those rare kinds of autobiographies. And I think we should talk about like what autobiography is supposed to do, but it's one of those rare autobiographies that are, that is both about the subject and about the reader. So we, we end up reading this text and are so able, it's so accessible, it's so able to see ourselves in it because Malcolm lives such a, a life of so many different kinds of experiences. There's so many points of entry for the reader into this book. So one is it's just accessible, especially for uh, the generations that have read it. And I think this will always be the case, but it is it's a book that talks about the experience of black people in the 20th century. There is the story of the great migration. There is the story of Jim Crow of the North. There is the story of segregation. There is the story of urbanization. There is the story of incarceration. There's the story of, of reform and revolution. There's the story of transnationalism. All, all of that is, is cap encapsulated in this really, in the short 39 years of Malcolm's life, he traveled, it's almost like he was traveling twice as fast as most people could live. And so he covered way more time than most people would cover in their own lifetime. And so I think just the, the compelling nature of his story is one of the reasons why this book has continued to speak to people. And it's not just, you know, what's so interesting is that, as I said, there's so many points of entry for this text. I mean, for some people, the book is like one of the sacred texts of Black freedom and Black revolution. And for other people, it's this literary text about personal transformation. And for other people, it's a self-help text about mm. how to self-improvement and self-making, you know. And, you know, so that I think is what, some of the reasons why this book was ranked by Time Magazine as one of the most important 10 books of the 20th century. Why does Malcolm X decide to write an autobiography? Malcolm is 39 when he dies. He's about 36, 37 when he starts this book. Why would somebody at 36 or 37 in the midst of this great social upheaval decide to write an autobiography? You know, Malcolm, when he set out on this project, did not intend to really write his autobiography. When he first met Alex Haley, Alex Haley was interviewing him for a piece that he was doing for Reader's Digest. And Malcolm, he was like, you know, those devils aren't going to let you print what I say. And when the stories came out, he felt that they were true representative uh, representations of him. And Alex Haley, of course, in finding more about Malcolm's story, was so drawn and captivated by this story of transformation that he wanted to, he was like, look, I want, you know, I want to tell your story. I want to do an autobiography. And at the time, Malcolm, as a minister in the Nation of Islam, said, well, you know, the person who you should really write about is the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, mm. right? Because he's the person that has been able to reform me and, and so many hundreds and maybe thousands of other people. It's really his story that, that you should tell. And, you know, Alex Haley wasn't that interested in the Honorable Elijah Muhammad story, but he, so he convinced Malcolm to, to do the autobiography. And, and Malcolm figured at that time he could, as he had been doing as a minister, use his own personal testimony to demonstrate the redemptive power of the teachings of, of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam. And so, you know, they got permission from, from Elijah Muhammad to go forward with this project. And at the time, Malcolm envisioned 
a book where there would be a few introductory essays about his life, but then there would be a series of essays that Malcolm would author that would feature his analysis of uh, the problem uh, and the solution for the problem faced by, as they call the so-called Negroes in America. And that was the original plan for the autobiography. This is going to be like religious promotional literature, almost like an infomercial for the Nation of Islam. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, it was very much, you know, the, of course, the most important books in the Nation of Islam and in most religion commun religious communities were the, the Bible and the Quran, right? And if you look at hadith, for example, you know, like the, the sort of classic hadith, which are the, the recordings of the sayings and the actions of, of the Prophet Muhammad, or even, you know, the various testaments of Jesus that are found in the Bible, you know, there's always this like short introductory portion about who the author is or who the subject is. It's like, let me tell you about this man. And then you go into their words. I mean, this was the model, right? Like this was what the autobiography was not intended to be an autobiography. It was intended to be a book that featured the Nation of Islam channeling through Malcolm's analysis of Black people in America and their condition and what the solution was. And, you know, recently, the Schomburg Library in New York acquired some of the early versions of the manuscripts uh, that would have informed the autobiography, including what many people sort of and famously refer to as the missing chapters. And, you know, one of those chapters is almost fully intact and it's called The Negro. And it is essentially an essay by Malcolm doing what he originally hoped the autobiography would do. You know, as the project evolved, it moved from a short bio entry and essays to just a straightforward autobiography. So, so um, let, let's, and, let's talk about that yeah. because there's some interesting things that are happening at the same time. First of all, Alex Haley finds Malcolm compelling, even more compelling than the leader of the Nation of Islam, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, at least as, an, at least as a subject for this particular book. What does he see in Malcolm that makes him think that Malcolm X should be doing a project like this? I think what, what Alex Haley saw in Malcolm is not that dissimilar from what Elijah Muhammad saw in Malcolm. He was young. He was charismatic. He was, by all accounts, attractive. He was someone who had lived a life that illustrated all of the ills that could be produced by white supremacy, right? Like he could present himself as someone who could testify not just to, here's what white supremacy does to you, but here's what you can do in response to change your life and the lives of your community. So I think that, you know, Malcolm was an effective representative, an eloquent representative, and someone who had the credibility. You know, Malcolm, Malcolm had a deep, deep, intimate knowledge of Black life that he was able to incorporate in the ways that he spoke, in the ways that he talked about, you know, race in America. And when I say intimate knowledge of Black life, it's not that, you know, most people who are Black have an intimate knowledge of Black life. But so it's not that, you, you know, we <laughs> don't, you know, yeah, yeah un unless, you know, something's happening, you know, so he had this deep, intimate knowledge of black life that he was able to translate like the folklore. I mean, when you look, listen to his speeches, he's able to tap into 
this sort of deep well of shared understandings and knowledge that Black people had that his ideas would, and his analysis would easily resonate. You know, the house slave and the field slave. Malcolm isn't the first to articulate it, but he articulates it so well as an effective tool to analyze class differences in the Black community. And so here's Malcolm bringing this sort of intellectual class analysis, but articulating it in the frame of folk culture that people easily could grasp onto. And he was very adept at doing that, right? The house slave, the field slave. He was very adept at drawing on the sort of tales of the urban outlaw. You know, he was very able to sort of fuse his intellect that was organically rooted with a deep analysis of race and class in America. Absolutely. And that's what I think makes Malcolm such a hero to so many people at the grassroots level. Uh, you didn't have to have a fancy degree. You didn't have to you know, be part of the civil rights class. You didn't have to be part of these fancy organizations. You could appreciate Malcolm. And Malcolm was on the ground in Harlem talking and speaking to people's hearts. And I, and I think the book gets at a lot of that. When the book is, is started, Malcolm is still a deep believer in the nation of Islam. As you pointed out, that's why he wanted to do the book, was to, to sing the praises of the nation and to show its transformative power. Over that two-year period, Malcolm goes from being the national representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and a major spokesman, really the face of the nation of Islam for many Black Americans, to having turmoil internal and at some point leaving the nation of Islam, or at the very least being silenced and never having the opportunity to return. There are different debates about what was happening, but at the very least, when Malcolm X died, he expressed a desire to leave the nation of Islam. He had begun uh, Muslim Mosque Incorporated and the Organization for Afro-American Unity. Malcolm was in a different place. So he's writing an autobiography based on the premise of, an of loving an organization. By the end of the book, he doesn't love them anymore. How does that play out in terms of the book process, can you, I mean, I, I can't imagine yeah. writing yeah. a book about my yeah. parents and how much I love them. And then when I get to chapter eight, I found out my parents, you know, I got beef with my parents. Do I change the beginning of the book or am I more honest about the end of the book? But then Malcolm dies. Yeah. So, you know, Malcolm functions as a dynamic narrator in a text. Other literary scholars might say unstable narrator or unfixed narrator, right? So the thing is, when, you, when you're doing something like a memoir project, you have to pick a point of reference and you have to use, that has to be the point of reference from which you interpret your past. Because the way you tell your story today might not be the way you tell your story uh, next year. And it will probably not be the way you tell your story 10 years from now, right? Because with time, you get to look back at the past and things that maybe look really important right now don't have the same importance or the things that the thread that you would use to link events of the past into a linear narrative might be different. You know, we don't really live linear lives, right? But we tell linear stories about our lives. That's why you can tell your story today and then tell your story to, to someone else today. And it would be two different stories. See, that's, right? that's that oral history stuff. See, that's that oral history <laughs> stuff, right? So when you're doing oral history, you, there is a constant revision that is happening. And, and it's not something to run from, right? Because what it, what it then invites you to understand 
is that a memoir or an oral history or anything that involves remembrance is documenting three points in time simultaneously. It's documenting the past that actually happened. It's documenting the present in which you are remembering and framing and telling the past that happened. And it's also documenting your aspiration for how you would like to understand the past that has happened, right? So there's past, present, and future bundled up in the act of remembrance, in telling that remembrance. And that's very much present in the autobiography. Now, what what is challenging about the autobiography is that that point is constantly moving. It's weird as you were as you were talking. I was like, "Wow, you know." And I, I think where you are as I, we're older than Malcolm X ever lived to be. Right. 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 And that's wild to me because I first encountered Malcolm as a teenager when I read his autobiography, exactly. and I never thought I would be looking at Malcolm as someone who was sort of younger than me, right? Or looking at myself as someone who had lived longer than Malcolm. And I think what we tend to do is take Malcolm with us. And I think it's unfair for us to assume that Malcolm is in his late 40s or in his 50s or his 60s or whoever, however old we are when we're reading Malcolm. We have to understand, like, this was a, this was a younger brother right. who was still very much in formation. And not only was his time shifting in terms of his point of reference for telling his story, his circumstance was shifting. Well, that's right? what I mean. As you pointed out. And radically. I mean, so, so structurally, the book is challenged because, so here's the deal that he had, he had with, with Alex Haley. Alex Haley had this deal with him. So, so basically, they would meet, they would talk, they would interview, Alex Haley would write a draft of a chapter, he would send it to Malcolm. Malcolm would sign off on the chapter. And the deal was once Malcolm signed off on the chapter, he couldn't co- he couldn't go back. Right? He couldn't go back to revise it. That's a hell of a way to write a book. Yeah, no, like it was just like no 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 slow down. You just dropped a major bomb on me. I did not know that. Yeah, that was the deal. I you know, so like I I guess I could understand Alex Haley knew he was he was dealing with a high functioning intellect, right? Like this, Malcolm was not like, you know, some like okie doke who could be okie doke, right? So Alex Haley had to be like, look, when I get you, I got you, whatever you say, this is what we get. We have to move with this progress because, you know, like, otherwise we're just going to be stuck at chapter one constantly. You know this as a writer. Yeah. You just kind of just have to keep writing, right? Because otherwise you'll be revising that first sentence over and over and over I again. I get that, Zahir, but, but I guess, and, and this is, I'm fascinating to hear that, that he literally, once he was done with the chapter, had to, had to move on. Because I think when you're recalling your life, later on you remember a detail or something yeah. hits you that you forgot. I mean, all kinds of things are possible. And in, the case, in this case, he's learning things, right? So Malcolm, yes. at least yes. from Malcolm's perspective and Malcolm's own words, there's a moment where Malcolm develops a different belief system, religious-wise. Not He's still yeah. Muslim, yeah. But, but he starts to question the theology yeah. of the organization. Yeah. Well, you know, so like, I will counter that to say, so there is a little foreshadowing that's sort of peppered in the text, but it's not, not significant. And I think the impact of that is like, we, we sort of go on Malcolm's journey. Let me tell you, as a kid, when I'm reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, I'm like getting hyped when he's getting hyped. 
And then I start getting disappointed when he's getting disappointed. Right. And then I'm devastated when he's devastated, right? Because there is no foreshadowing, right? There's no like sign, there's no warning sign that this is about to go south. Like if you don't know his story and you come to it, you are taken for this journey. And I, so I guess- I appreciate you know, like, that. I, I get your point. Because what it does mean is that the text is really, there's a kind of incohesiveness about the text, right? It doesn't cohere the way a sort of like, I'm sitting down and doing a summation of my life autobiography would. But on the flip side, from the the experience of a reader, you don't really know something's about to go down until you get to like the Icarus chapter, right? Right. But it's like Malcolm may know it was about to go down. <laughs> exactly. So we get to we get to feel that, right? And, and we feel it like that kind of disappointment that Malcolm feels, we feel it. Cause we're like, we're like, yeah, you know, chapter 14, the black Muslims, and he's like doing this and the Johnson Hinton case, and he brings the brothers out and they challenge the police and he's giving these speeches, and then it's like, wait, what? Right. So part of this this the you know, like we talk about why this book works so well. You know, so I used to argue with Manning Marable a lot, who was my mentor when we were working on the Malcolm X Project. And I used to TA. Manning Marable is, was a brilliant uh, historian at Columbia University who passed away just as he was publishing really one of the most, if not the most important biography of Malcolm X, uh, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. Of course, Zahir was part of the, the project and, and was a mentee of Manning Marables. But go ahead, please. You know, I used to TA his class and he used to make fun of me because he would get to these parts of his lectures where he would go hard on Alex Haley. Because of all the things that we've just talked about, the autobiography is, is a difficult text to rely on as a primary source for historical accuracy. Right. That isn't saying that it's not true, but there is just it's difficult. It's you have to understand how the text is constructed to be able to understand what that history is. And, you know, like I understand that I understand that, like the things that Alex Haley did that made this a harder text to use as a primary source. But I will say this about Alex Haley. He was a masterful storyteller in the sense that when we talk about why this book works, the book works because of Malcolm's testimony. It works because of Malcolm's life being how powerful it is and how much it still speaks to our like multiple generations, you know, who have going through some of these experiences. But the book also works because it stands up as a piece of literature. And that for that, I think we have to credit Alex Haley. For um, sure. If you, look at, if you look at the manuscript that is at the Schomburg, so one of the early drafts of the manuscript, you see the marginal notes or comments from both Malcolm and Alex Haley. And there's this whole conversation happening between them. And Haley's telling Malcolm X, like, stop speechifying, show don't tell. Isn't there a story that can illustrate this? So like, you know, from your work as a writer, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, it's more powerful if you can have a story that illustrates what the point you're trying to drive home. And Malcolm at some points was so didactic, was so interested in like making it plain and getting to the point. He wasn't, you know, sort of dressing it up in the story. And Alex Haley knew you needed to have something that would motivate and want people to turn the page, right? Like what causes someone to want to turn the page, to want to keep reading, to not put the book down? We can talk about this book as a piece of literature. And you mentioned that it's a challenge to think about this book as a historical document or as a source um, because yeah. Malcolm is telling his own story, but Malcolm is also a religious zealot. And yeah. so there are moments where Malcolm is telling stories and I have to, and I found myself asking myself, did Malcolm believe this 
or did Malcolm want us to believe this? I'll give you a specific example. When Ma- Malcolm was in prison from 1946 until 1952, he joins the Nation of Islam around 1950. He says that he was praying in his prison cell and sees Master Farad Muhammad, right, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam and the person who the Nation of Islam believes to be God in person. Yeah. Later, by the end of the book, he no longer believes that Master Fad Muhammad is God in the flesh. He no longer believes that. So I wonder, could he have actually had a theophany if later on he doesn't even believe the guy was or the story was real? Yeah. Because to me, if I if I had a vision of somebody who I'd never met right. before. Right. And then later on, I saw that person's picture said, that's the guy in my cell that I saw. Right. It'd right. be real hard to convince me that I didn't have a theophany. Or conversely, if I realize later on, or if I come to believe later on, I'm not making any judgments about the Nation of Islam's theology, but if I came to believe that that story was no longer longer true, I'd have to ask myself, why did I think that thing before? Was I telling the truth that I want to believe that? Was I convincing myself? Was this part of the conversion literature I was trying to create for the reader? Some of these inconsistencies, I think, are just human nature. Or we we just brag. I might add a few more points per game on my basketball average when my kids ask me, right? But there's another way that I'm like, well, I don't know if I can, tr- I don't know if this account is trustworthy. What do you say to that? I don't know if I have a single answer to that. First of all, I, I love that you brought that up because for people, for, for many people who haven't read the autobiography and maybe their their main introduction to Malcolm's life is Spike Lee's film. We're going to talk um, about that too. <laughs> <laughs> Spike Lee, I think Spike Lee had the same trouble that you had with this scene because in in the film Spike Lee depicts the visage of Elijah Muhammad right being the one that Malcolm imagines right for people who have ever seen a picture of Master Farad Muhammad he looks like a white man and Spike Lee is probably like how am I going to how am I going to explain this right. in the the story that I'm trying to tell but I think what you're raising is an important question that invites us to think more about what was the spiritual life of Malcolm, um, because so much of what we, we think and, and know about Malcolm is his sort of external representation, which is the exoteric or the political or the material representation of his ideas, that we don't really know much about his esoteric or spiritual experiences. And then historians in general are materialists and empiricists and are not comfortable talking about, writing about the experiences of religious people. So how how do I deal with that? One is I don't know, and we don't know what description Malcolm had of either Elijah Muhammad or Malcolm X at the time he was in prison when this experience happened. So first, I'm just going to, number one, I'm going to say he had an experience. Yeah, I'm going to accept that he had an experience. (laughs) Because if if we're not willing to do that, then we got to go all the way back to Paul on the road, you know, Peter, we got to go all the way back and start questioning all people's visions, right? So like, unless we're ready to do that, I'm just going to accept that Malcolm had this experience. It's quite possible, you know, so this comes at a time where Malcolm is just introduced to the teachings of the Nation of Islam. He's going in deep, right? And he's fasting. He's struggling to pray. These are things that are very new to him. It was a very intense period in his life. And he is yearning consciously through prayer, yearning for an answer, 
right? He's writing to Elijah Muhammad, writing for an answer, like he's, he's yearning. So it is not unreasonable to accept for me that those yearnings, that striving, that prayer as an expression of desire is manifested in a form of a vision. Now, I don't know what he saw. I don't know who he saw. I don't know that he knew what or who he saw at the time because he's trying to make meaning out of this experience. That's what I'm saying. Right? And, it, and it felt like maybe and, retroactively and, or retrospectively, he was like, you know what? That's who that was. And, yeah, exactly, then, and, and then as a exactly, believer, it's easy. Exactly. And I think that, that that's fair to say about Malcolm without diminishing or dismissing the authenticity of the spiritual experience that he had. Without a doubt. And my intention isn't to question his his yeah. spiritual experience as much as it is to say, what does it mean to narrate your life as your beliefs are changing? And how does that shape how we understand the story that you ultimately decide to tell? But there's, but it's not just the veracity, the veracity claims about those kinds of things. Another interesting thing that's happening, I think, in the book, and Manning Marable talks about this in his brilliant book, Malcolm, A Life of Reinvention, is that Malcolm seems to be prone to exaggeration. I mean, Malcolm is a great storyteller. And, yeah. and as Malcolm is telling the story of being a street, a street hustler who hits the rock bottom of society before having this conversion experience in, around 1950 in prison, Malcolm says things that, that certainly beef up the level of evil he was engaged in, the, the depths that he had sunk to. So Malcolm, for example, talks about being a kind of a big street hustler in Detroit when he kind of wasn't, Right. And Malcolm tells a story of his mom not getting paid uh, insurance money uh, after his dad, who was a member of the uh, the UNIA under the leadership of Marcus Garvey, that he was killed by Klansmen and the, and, the, and the insurance company refused to pay his mother, which tells the story of just how evil white supremacy was in Jim Crow America. He, he tells these stories, but when we scratch underneath the surface and look at the archives, well, she was paid insurance and Malcolm wasn't the biggest street hustler. So again, I don't think Malcolm's lying but I do wonder, how do we jive Malcolm's sincere desire to convert the reader, which was the initial goal of the book, with what history teaches us might not be exactly the case? And does it even matter? Well, yeah. And, and so I think this is, you know, this has always been the challenge with the genre of Black autobiography, even going back to the slave narratives, which were some of the earliest versions of Black autobiography. And there was always this challenge of what people call exemplarity, which is, how do I you know, tell my story so that my life is an exemplary lesson for the community, but do it in a way that I'm not so exemplary, I become exceptional, right? So how do you, how do you be the example without becoming the exception, right? Mm. And so to do that, there's a constant sort of dance between the individual story and the community story. And so for me, when, you know, sort of confronting those, you know, elements of the autobiography that may not apply to Malcolm's personal life, I understand it to speak to this kind of larger social truths of the Black experience in America at the time, you know, of the Black community's experience. So there's personal a truth, and then there's like sociological truth. It was, look, Malcolm never really wanted to talk about his life, right? He wanted to, to sort of rest the story on the sociological truths of Black America. And so this is both the sort of like my story and every man's story that he's trying to accomplish. Now, one thing I, I will say, you know, I think as you see, as the text progresses, 
And as Malcolm's life progresses, the weight of having to carry a whole nation or having to carry a whole community story begins to weigh down on him and you begin to see the individual emerging. And I think that that's sort of a natural trajectory for most people, right? In sort of coming into your own. And so even the ways that he sort of leaves various sort of affiliations, the affiliations with you know, as Detroit read, the affiliations with prison, the affiliations with the Nation of Islam. This is a process that um, Malcolm is going through that is, you know, I think that, that we have to respect. And I think one of the challenges with someone like Malcolm that, that a lot of us face is that we, we sort of become very attracted to a particular phase of his life yeah. that we then sort of freeze in time. And this becomes for us the Malcolm or who Malcolm is. But in fact, it was quite dynamic. And, and you know, to the degree that the autobiography gestures to that, I think it's really important. No, I, absolutely. And you talk about the versions. The, the book ends with Malcolm in Mecca. And Malcolm tells a story of seeing <laughs> All kinds of. I already know where you're going. No, I'm just look. I'm just. I'm just saying, man. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's an interesting thing, right? Mal- Malcolm. Yeah. Malcolm talks about his his experience. Uh, Hajj. Mal- Malcolm is also known as El Hajj Malik Shabazz because he makes the pilgrimage of Hajj or Hajj, which is one of the religious obligations of the Muslim. And he tells a story of seeing a kind of Islam that he had not previously seen. He talks about what it meant to drink water from the Zemzem. He talked about as he was doing the circuits around the Kaaba, which is the holiest site in Islam, he, in Mecca. He, he talks about seeing these things with white Muslims and yellow Muslims and brown Muslims. And he ends up telling a story of, of how he came to see Islam differently and in some ways how it animates his move, departure away from the nation of Islam's theology, which presumes that the white man is the devil by nature, right? And that Islam is primarily for black people and, and, and is designed for black people and, and all these sorts of things. And again, you know, as I think about that, it's like, well, two things. One, of course, Malcolm had been to the Middle East before. He'd seen white Muslims before. Mal- Malcolm had traveled in 59 before he traveled in 64. But but also it seemed again, like at the beginning, Malcolm was seeing having theophanies of Master Farah Muhammad when it was in the service of advancing the nation argument. And by the end, he's, he's celebrating white Muslims in this kind of Disney narrative of being converted to the, the right type of Islam. Again, how much of that is Alex Haley and the, and, the, and the desire to tell a great story? And how much of that is Malcolm being so invested in his beef with the nation at that time that he kind of flattened out some of that complexity? I think Malcolm had, a, you know, like an authentic Hajj experience. And for anyone, and I haven't been blessed to make that journey, but in all of the people that I've talked to who have made their journey, it, it is deeply, deeply impactful. We should just lay that as the base of of this sort of part of the conversation. That said, Malcolm was at a point in his life, as you've pointed out, where he was trying to reframe his presentation of him, his representation. Manning, Marable uses the word reinvent and, you know, people are all upset about it. I don't find anything problematic about that idea of, of him wanting to sort of reintroduce himself in a different way. You know, Malcolm wrote letters uh, that, you know, the famous letter from Mecca, which was technically written from Jeddah after he had completed the Hajj. uh, It's reprinted in the autobiography. He didn't write one letter. 
he wrote the letter and had it been issued as a press release from Muslim Mas Inc., which was the organization that he had founded after he left the Nation of Islam. He wrote copies of that letter to reporters, to journalists, to activists, to community people. I mean, he, he really wanted people to know this. You know, these, these letters are in circulation and they all say pretty much the same thing. Like he was his own sort of PR machine in that state. He was like, I'm issuing a press release. I'm issuing a statement and I want as many people as possible to know this. And so he very much wanted this to be a major signpost in his life story, right? Yeah. He, he definitely wanted that to be. That said, you know, he wanted that to be because he wanted to further signify his break from the Nation of Islam. He wanted to create openings for people who were in the, the more traditional civil rights movement to see that there were points of entry that he could work with uh, them. But even when you look at that letter, he's very precise in his use of language because there's the line that he famously uses. And I, I compare Malcolm's letter from, from after Hajj to Martin's I Have a Dream speech. Yes. Because, you know, people use them for the same reasons, right? Like people talk about the dream part of like, I have a dream that my children and your children gonna walk hand in hand. Nobody quotes the part of the I Have a Dream speech where he's talking about a promissory note <laughs> and right. what is owed, right? Similarly, when people talk about Malcolm's letter for after Hajj, they talk about this phrase where he's like, and I sat with Muslims with the whitest of white skin, blondest of blonde hair and bluest of blue eyes. And we felt like we were brothers. And, you know, when you read the letter, Malcolm puts white in quotes, right? Like yes. when he's saying white, he puts whites in quotes. You know, he says Islam had, had sort of removed the whiteness from them. Right. This is not Malcolm giving white people a get out of jail free card. But it, right? but it does signal this a is shift Malcolm, though, right? But this is, you know, this is Malcolm shifting from what was a sort of genetic understanding of whiteness, you know, with Yaqub's history and the Nation of Islam's theology, right. to an understanding of whiteness as a socially constructed identity that was still deeply problematic. Whiteness still was problematic. The, the reason why he experienced, he said, this brotherhood that he experienced was because the whiteness had sort of been mitigated against or removed by Islam. Now, we can, we can say like, well, you know, is he just sort of like appealing to this idea of a race-blind uh, Islam? And, and I think that that's an important conversation to have. But I, I want to point out that the, the letter from Hajj was a letter that signaled Malcolm, you know, decades before whiteness studies ever takes flight that he becomes, he comes to understand white as a socially constructed identity that is deeply, deeply problematic and as an impediment to a brotherhood and equality that can be experienced by all people. So he is not saying like, I'm going to sit with white people right. as white people and chill. He's like, I'm going to sit with you if you've done some work on what that whiteness means. Exactly. No, no, and, and it's an important point and an important distinction you're making. It's not that he's suddenly turned into some Disney commercial uh, about white people, it, 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 but, but it is a theological shift to be sure. And, and there might be all kinds of reasons for it. So, but it, it's just a fascinating thing when we think about why he might do it. What do you see as the enduring legacy of this, of this book? It's funny, the book has its own history. You know, the book came out in October, as you said, eight months after Malcolm had been assassinated. If you read some of the obituaries that were written in the so-called mainstream press uh, the day after Malcolm was killed, they were brutal. 
I mean, just downright nasty person of the ghetto, someone who used his talents for evil. This is like the New York Times, right? I think Time Magazine called him a demagogue, just making mockery, someone who preached violence. You know, no surprise, he died by violence. And then eight months later, the book comes out and these, some of these same publications, mind you, different writers, different editorial policies, but some of these same publications are doing a reassessment of how they understand Malcolm, eloquent spokesperson, a story you must read. It was critically acclaimed. And, you know, the book came out in October 1965, a few months after the passage of the Voting Rights Act which many people sort of regard as the sort of final major piece of legislation in the the, the civil rights movement. When people sort of periodize the civil rights movement, they do 1954 Brown versus Board to 1965 Voting Rights Act. And then there's like a shift, obviously, um, that happens. Now, for people who study the Black Freedom Movement, we see this as all part of the Black Freedom Movement. But in the later months of the 1965 and early 66, you have the burgeoning expression of the Black Freedom Movement in the form of Black power. You have the formation of the Black Panther Party in 1966. And one of their, you know, kind of founding thinkers, Eldridge Cleaver, talks about reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? So this book's legacy This book has raised revolutionaries. This book has raised activists. This book has inspired so many people. This book is really the book that gives Malcolm his afterlife. In addition to the speeches that were published that were in circulation, it is the autobiography of Malcolm X that brings Malcolm X into homes, into classrooms, into prison cells, into street corners, into all of these spaces that Malcolm was not able to reach while he was alive and certainly after he had been killed. And so the book is Malcolm's afterlife. And then for many of us, the book is ours too, right? Because we are so, I mean, the book is so deeply inspiring and it's the kind of book that you you put it down and it continues to write into you, right? It's a book that continues to inscribe the principles that Malcolm represented, whether you're most attracted to the personal story of transformation, of constant self-critical reflection and development, or you're attracted to the more sociological story of this deep searing critique of white supremacy and the need to mobilize and organize across all kinds of boundaries in order to fight it, or you, you take it all in, this book is carrying that. And after you put it down, it continues to speak to you. And I think that 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 is the legacy of of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it is a deep and beautiful legacy. And 55 years uh, after the book was published, it continues to matter and it'll continue to be part of our conversation. Zahir, thank you so much for joining me. How can people reach you? How can people find you on social? Uh, Zahir Ali, you know, at Twitter, primarily uh, at Z-A-H-E-E-R-A-L-I. Cool, man. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee, A-N-D, Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that I've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's, or you can go straight to unclebobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com.